I haven't met you, I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here you've already heard from. Chris and Josh, I'm honored to be able to preach God's word to us this morning. Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word. Uh, How many of you, if I grabbed you over coffee after the the meeting today, would, would say that you enjoy answering why questions? Why questions? Not sure. Okay. Yeah, some of you do. Um, well, let me broaden the pool a little bit here. If you have ever lived with a younger sibling, or you're a parent of a young child, or you parented a young child at, at one point, uh, you faced, as I do right now, a regular barrage of why questions. How many of you are now familiar with why questions? Yeah, now we know what we're talking about, right. So this is not a one-for-one recording, but, you know, I have conversations that go something like this. Hey, Daddy, why do we have to go outside? Uh, Because we need to get in the car. Why do we need to get in the car? Because we need to run some errands. Put your shoes on. Hey, Daddy, yes? Why do we need to run errands? You haven't put your shoes on yet. (laughs) Because mommy needs us to get some things for her. Put your shoes on. Hey, daddy. Yes. Why does mommy want us to get things for her? Why do we have to get things for mommy? Because I said so. Now, to to confess, in all truth, uh, many times I don't wait that long, you know, to pull out the, you know what, I love being a dad, because I said so card. Um, And there are points where I don't apologize for answering that way. You know, I, I want my kids to take me at my word, to trust me that daddy knows what's best and the same is true of my, my relationship with God. I want to trust that, that he knows what's best for me and be willing to take him at his word. But when I think about that, church, I'm, I'm really grateful for something. I'm grateful for how many times God answers why questions for us. You realize that? He, if anybody in the world has the right to say, because I say so. It's God. And there are times he does that. But there are a lot of times he doesn't do that. There are many times God answers big why questions in Scripture, perhaps none more important than this one. Okay? Here's the question. Why is God worthy of praise? That's a why question. Why is God worthy of praise? The Bible's filled with commands to, to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord, to bless the Lord, and I'm thankful that it's also filled with reasons why we should praise the Lord and worship the Lord and bless the Lord. God, God doesn't leave that why question unanswered. He doesn't just say, because I say so. And Ephesians 1 is one of these places. So read with me beginning in verse 3. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Having predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Stop there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, tell me why you would say that. Why would you say that? What, what is it that causes Paul to not open this letter to the Ephesians that we began studying last week with his, his normal you know, personal introduction or long expressions of thanksgiving for the people that he's writing to? Why, what is it that causes him to explode in verses 3 through 14 with one sentence that is over 200 words long in praise to God. You don't don't see that in our English Bibles, but verses 3 to 14 are one sentence as written by Paul. You know, I think of how many emails that I I write during a given week, and I, I don't know recently how many of them, how many of yours, started off with something like this. So what gives Paul, what would cause you to just overflow in praise to God? Well, I think if Paul were here, church, I brought him up. I said, Paul, why would you write that? He would say something like this. God is worthy of your praise. Because he is the source and goal of every spiritual blessing. And he has given all of them to you. God is worthy of praise because he is the source and goal of every spiritual blessing. And he has given all of them to you. Okay, Ephesians 1.3 couldn't be a stronger statement. Paul's not expressing a hope or or writing a wish. He's not making a recommendation or issuing a a suggestion or, or offering a religious option. He's declaring the truth. He's proclaiming reality. And if you read all the way to the end of verse 14, you get the sense that if Paul were here and he were reading these words, he wouldn't be using an inside voice. There's a reason for that. Because he understands one of the most important things a Christian can ever understand. Namely, that God is the source and goal of every spiritual blessing. And he has given all of them to you. He gets that. He gets that. And I want us to notice in verse 3 that Paul isn't ascribing praise or, or directing blessing to some sort of generic God. Okay, He's not... Worshipping the the divine reality that somehow Christianity and and Buddhism and and Islam are all trying to get at. 
No, he's, he's blessing the name of the one true God, namely the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the outset, he wants us to remember that God is our Father. When you think about who is God, there's one thing the Bible proclaims over and over again. Who is God? He is a Father. And you know what? He was a father before he created the world. Why? Because he has a son. Jesus Christ. You you can't be a father if you don't have a son. But we know he's a father because he has a son, Jesus Christ, and it is through Christ that the father has most clearly revealed himself to us. So when Paul overflows in praise in Ephesians 1, he's not talking about his concept of God. Or Christianity's take on God. He's talking about the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, all three persons of the Godhead are found in verse 3. They're all there. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. It's not just a contrast to material blessing. That's Paul's way of signaling that these blessings the Father has given us through the Son come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, which means that the Trinity, the word Christians use to describe one God, three persons, wasn't something that a bunch of bishops came up with in the 4th century. Okay? You're going to find books that will try to convince you of that. That's not true. God is triune because he reveals himself as triune in the pages of Scripture. You see that in verse 3. Here's what Paul says the triune God has done. Father, Son, and Spirit, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Which is another way of saying, Christian, God has blessed you beyond your wildest imagination. Beyond your wildest imagination. I want to make a couple things clear here, okay, as we're jumping in. Remember, when Paul says that our blessings are spiritual, he's not so much contrasting them with material things as he is saying that they come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, secondly... When he says heavenly places, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, he's not referring to the location of heaven as if it's a geographical thing. He's simply saying that there are blessings that come to us from the spiritual or the heavenly realm of reality. And third, most importantly, Paul says, these spiritual blessings are given to us in a very particular way, namely, in Christ. In Christ. Which means, friend... But if you want to experience the blessing of God, if the things that Paul goes on to say in all these verses are are true, if you want them to be true in your life, then there is one thing that you need more than anything else. You need to be found in Christ. In Christ. Which means you need to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's really two sides of the same coin. You need to trust, you need to repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Lord because you owe Him your life. And you need to trust Jesus as your Savior because He died on the cross 
in your place. Do that and you will be spiritually united to Christ by faith. And this phrase, in Christ, or in Him, shows up 11 times in the first 14 verses of this letter. Okay? That's meant to get your attention. All the spiritual blessings that God has lavished on you, Christian, only come your way in Christ. In Christ. And in Christ... God has given you every spiritual blessing. That means that every good gift your soul needs to know God and enjoy God has already been given to you. Think about that. No exceptions, no restrictions, nothing missing. Everything you need to know God and enjoy God has already been given to you in Jesus. Now, there's a challenge I hope you're hearing me say that and you're like, I don't know. Is that that true? Because, you know, I think I lack some. Well, here's the challenge, right? Here's the challenge. Just because God has given us everything we need to know and enjoy him forever doesn't mean that we are recognizing his blessings, appreciating his blessings, or living in the good of his blessings. Right? In many ways, that, that's what the entire book of Ephesians is designed to do, to help us live in the good of the spiritual blessings God's granted us in Christ. But at the very beginning, Paul wants to make one thing crystal clear. Everything your soul needs, everything your soul longs for, every kind of blessing that you could ever request or imagine, all of them, without exception, your Father in heaven has granted to you already in Jesus Christ. It's as if, to borrow perhaps a bad analogy, if you're in Christ in a spiritual sense, you won the Powerball this week. <laughs> you are unbelievably rich if you're in Unbelievably rich. It's like if if spiritual blessings were a Christmas list, then Christian, God has given you everything that was on your list, everything that you forgot to put on your list, and everything that you didn't even know could go on a list. Every spiritual blessing. There's not an asterisk by that. There's not a a partial by that. Every blessing in Christ right now. And the blessings that Paul Paul lists in this whole section, verses 4 to 14, are, are just a highlight reel, okay? Every spiritual blessing would require a lot more than these couple verses. But the blessings that he mentions here are illustrations. They're highlights. And I'm grateful that Paul gives us these examples. And there are two particular blessings. Two blessings in verses 4 and 6. Two spiritual blessings that I want you to think of as the headwaters for all the other spiritual blessings. Okay, how many of you like to fly fish? Anybody with me? Enjoy fly fishing. Thank you. Chris, your hand was the first to go up. Yes, Ron. We've got to work on this. I need to have more time to fish. But 
if you enjoy fishing in Virginia, you know something. Um, the James River is formed by two rivers. The Jackson River and the Calpaster River. Two rivers come together. I can tell you're looking at me like, I don't have a clue. I don't know. What, what are you talking about? Here, here's the point. The Jackson River and the Calpaster River, they come together to form the James River. If all the spiritual blessings that God's given us in Christ are like the James River, which is a pretty big river, then the two blessings Paul mentions in verses 4 to 6 are like the Jackson and the Calpaster. It's the headwater. Okay, these are the two blessings that together form the foundation, the wellspring, the headwaters of all the other spiritual blessings. And they consist of two things that God did for us in eternity past. Okay, so I've got two points this morning, two spiritual blessings that are the headwaters of all our other spiritual blessings. Blessing number one, if you're a Christian, God chose you. Look at verse 4. He, God the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, to say, in case some of you are squirming, that God chose us is to speak of the mystery of divine election, and to jump into the deep end of the theological pool. You're welcome. And it means, Christian, if I were to summarize, that the reason you are a Christian, the ultimate explanation for that fact, has everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. That's it. And the reason for that is very simple. God is not a celebrity looking for a fan club, okay? He's a king looking for followers. So what does our king see when he looks out on the world he's created? Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What does he see? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. I hope you realize he's not talking about terrorists. He's talking about us. The most morally upright person that you know, friend, is not impressive to God. He's holy, we are not. He's righteous, we are not. He's pure, we are not. He can't bear to look at evil. We Google it. We click on it. We lust after it. We gorge our flesh on it. Okay, who are we? Unholy, blameworthy. Enemies of God. That's, that's who we are. So, so what, is, what does God do then? What does God do? Abandon us? What washes hands of us? Allow us to run headlong to hell where we want to go? No. Praise God he doesn't do that. In an act of sovereign grace, he chooses some to experience 
what we are not looking for, not asking for, and could never deserve. Namely, the miracle of salvation. He gives you, Christian, a new heart, a new spirit that causes you to do what you would never do on your own. Namely, to turn away from sin and toward faith in Jesus Christ. He does that. So, Christian, if I were to ask you, to what shall we attribute your conversion to Christ? What would you say? What would you say? Perhaps you would say, because there came a day when I saw that I needed a Savior, and Jesus was that Savior. Why was there a day when you saw you needed a Savior? Jesus was that Savior. Well, perhaps you would say, because I I grew weary of sin. I reached an end of myself. So why did you go weary of sin? And why did you reach an end of yourself? So many people continue in sin their entire life. No regrets. They die with no regrets. Well, I suppose it was because I was raised in a Christian home. And and the truth I heard long ago came back to haunt me. Well, why were you raised in a Christian home? So that one day the truth would come back to haunt you. What did you do to merit an upbringing that would one day prompt you to choose Christ? Well, here's the piercing answer of Ephesians 1.4. The only explanation for your decision to choose Christ, which I might add is a real decision and an absolutely necessary decision, is that God first chose you. He chose you. And that before the foundation of the world. Okay, why does Paul say that? He chose you before the foundation of the world. You know what before the foundation of the world was meant to tell you? That means that it was before you had done anything that could possibly merit God choosing you. You hadn't even lived yet. And he chose you. Before you had the possibility of earning something from him, he chose to see you not for who you are in yourself, but for who you are in Christ. And in that light, to set his affection on you so that one day, at just the right time, you would hear the good news of the gospel, look to Christ, and be saved. As John Calvin says, did did God then have an eye to us when he vouchsafed to love us? No. No, for then he would have utterly abhorred us. It is true that in regarding our miseries, he had pity and compassion on us to relieve us. But that was because, listen, he had already loved us in our Lord Jesus Christ. God then must have had before him his pattern and mirror in which to see us. That is to say, he must have first looked on our Lord Jesus Christ before he could choose us 
and call us. Here's what that means, Christian. God didn't just choose you. He chose you in Christ. In other words, God's sovereign purpose in election is brought to pass through Christ's decisive work of redemption. There's a connection, which means the only explanation for your conversion is the grace of God and the gospel. You didn't deserve it. You can't earn it. You hadn't even been born yet. But God saw you. God chose to look on you as being in Christ. And because of that reason and that reason alone, you came to faith. That is what Paul means when he says, blessed be God, even as he chose us. Now, I am very aware that many Christians struggle with the doctrine of election. And many speak about it and blog about it as if it is a three-headed green monster that John Calvin invented that obliterates human responsibility and creates arrogant Christians who walk around so utterly and supremely confident that I got elected. Now, friend, if on some level you have sympathized with that objection, then listen to me very carefully. There are two things, two things, that the Apostle Paul says the doctrine of election should produce in us. Here's the first. This blessing of election, this headwater of being chosen. First thing it should produce is a deep and abiding humility before God. Okay, there is no such thing as a self-made Christian. There's not. Are, 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 you, are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? I hope so. You have to. That's a real have to. But why are you doing that? How are you able to do that? God's word couldn't be more clear. The only reason that's happening is because God is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Okay, even your faith isn't an act of merit. Well, what is faith? Faith is an empty hand that clings to Christ, that despairs of doing anything to save ourselves. So, did you choose God, Christian? Yes, you did. You have to. You must. But it's only because God first chose you. Which is another way of saying that with this blessing of being chosen, we see that God is the gracious source of all our spiritual blessings. God's the gracious source of them. So, tell me, friend, tell me on what basis are you going to look down on the brother or sister who's sitting next to you on Sunday morning? Or the man or woman sitting across from you on on Monday morning. What is the ground of your boasting? The justification for your incessant comparison and the selfish ambition that, that says with our mouth, it's all about God, but while we conclude in our hearts, it's all about us. What is the basis for that? What is your grounds for that? What what is it that enables you to climb on a spiritual ladder and look down on the world around you? 
You know what the Apostle Paul would say? You don't have a basis to do that. You don't have a ground to do that. Because God laid his hand on you. That's all. That's all. If you're a Christian, the doctrine of election should make you humble. Second, the doctrine of election should make you holy. Holy. Maybe you think or have heard, well, well, if God just goes around electing people, well, then what difference does it make whether or not I obey his commands? I'm chosen. See ya. Well, if you were to say that, I would say this. You utterly misunderstand the entire doctrine of election. You don't get it. Why? Because it has a divine intent, a divine purpose. Namely, look at verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It has a purpose. It's meant to produce something in you. Sovereign choosing grace has an intent, namely producing a people for God's own possession who are zealous for good works. So so think about this with me. Okay, think about this. How often do we grow lazy in the fight against sin? How often do we just justify a little compromise here or a little compromise there and and tell ourselves that, that, well, we'll get serious tomorrow? How often do we do that? Well, friend, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, a purpose older and deeper and stronger than your flagging resolve is even now fueling your fight against sin. It's driving it. It's called the sovereign grace of God. He chose you for a purpose. He chose you for a mission. He chose you so that he could work something in you that you could never work for yourself. The doctrine of election guarantees that the battle you're fighting against sin right now is not and will never be a lost cause. You are not the underdog in your fight against sin. This is not X-Wing versus Death Star. It's not. Because God's action to choose you in the past guarantees God's power in you in the present. That's the point. That's the connection. If God has chosen you that you might be holy and blameless, then here's what's happening. There is a power from God behind your life and in your life that, by the way, raised Christ from the dead that is even now working to make you holy and blameless. God's power, not yours. You're not an underdog. So fight the good fight of faith. Let the blessing of being chosen make you humble and then let it make you holy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called because God has taken hold of you. And remember that if holiness, to any extent, presently marks your life, that's not a cause for boasting. That's a cause for thanksgiving. Because God has given that to you. Okay, why is God worthy of praise? Two headwater blessings. Blessing number one, because he chose us. Here's the second one. This is shorter. Blessing number two, he predestined us. He chose us. He predestined us. I want you to listen to the end of verse four so you can hear how it connects to the beginning of verse five. If you look at verse four, in some Bibles, 
The last two words of verse 4 are in love. There's a period after before him, then in love, and it's kind of an awkward break. Well, there's a reason for that. If you translate this section, people argue over the best way to translate it. Because, again, it's one sentence, so the periods are kind of up for grabs, up for discussion. In my opinion, the best place for the period is after in love. Okay? So that verse 4 ends with, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. He chose us having predestined us. Okay, to predestine someone or something is to make a decision beforehand, to predetermine. Now, granted, there's not a clean line of division between God choosing us and God predestining us. I'm not going to give you some crystal clear, well, it's this, not that. Okay, they're, they're related. But, but if I were to distinguish between them, as I think Paul's doing here, I would put it this way. If election describes God's activity predestination describes God's purpose. Okay, behind all God's activity, there's a purpose. And so if his activity is choosing us, then the purpose driving that is his predestination of us. His predetermined purpose for us ensures his election of us. Which means if you're a Christian... The purpose behind the activity of God's grace in your life is not random chance. This is really encouraging. Think about this. The purpose behind God's work in your life is nothing less than the Father's intent to share with you the same love that he has had for his Son for all eternity. How is he going to get that done? By adopting you. God's purpose, if you're a Christian, is to share with you the same love that he's had for his son Jesus Christ from all eternity. How's he going to get that done? By adopting you into his family as a child of God. Okay, that means, please hear this, the doctrine of election is not a product of the heart of some mechanistic tyrant. It's the product of the heart of of a father, a father who's, who's driven by no other reason than his own good pleasure to give you a new status, new privileges, new blessings to which you have no natural right or claim. But now having been adopted in his family, you have every right and claim in the world. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's your right. Why? Because you've been adopted as his child. So think about this. Do you realize God could have just stopped with saving you? He could. He could have just said, you know, here's what I'm going to do. This would have been merciful. Guilt erased, sin defeated, hell closed, heaven opened. Come on in. Great party. There's good food and wine. I would be on board for that. But he did more. He didn't stop with saving you. He wanted you. He wasn't just looking to change your judicial status, condemned, righteous. He was looking to bring you back 
to himself. He wanted relationship with you. God's predetermined purpose in the grace of election is deliberately and intimately relational. That means, church, that means that the Son of God didn't die on the cross to get you into church on Sunday morning. The Son of God died on the cross so that you could join Him in knowing and loving the Father. Big difference. Okay? Big difference. And that means, take heart, no matter how far away God feels, I don't know what awaits you in 2016, but there are doubtless going to be moments when you think, God, I feel like I'm in another universe and you're not even here. When that happens, know this. You are never a name on a roll. You are never a number in the matrix. Christian, you're a child of God child of God. You're his son or his daughter. He made you. He loves you. He cares for you. He can't leave or forsake you. Why do I say that? Is that, is that well, he can't leave or forsake me? Why? Because God's like some half-blind grandfather and he's just blind to your sin and your weaknesses? Well, no. He knows you better than you know yourself. He can't leave you or forsake you because before you were born, he determined to adopt you as his child. Okay, which means it's not the power of your perfection that secured your adoption. It's the purpose of his will. Huge difference. And that means, friend, God doesn't regret adopting you. If God's worked in your life, there's never a point, Christian, where he steps back and looks at you and thinks, oh, shoot. Should have picked the short straw. No, no. He doesn't regret adopting you. Because he determined before you were born to get that done. And God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. Your adoption Your salvation is not something your father regrets. And even when you try to live as if it's not true, if he chose you, you're going to get home. You're going to get home. Going to get home. Do you realize how this is not just doctrines that are in the Bible so Christians can fill up web pages with argument? That's the best news you could ever hear. That God has lavished every spiritual blessing upon you. And the headwaters of that is not your merits or your designs or your intents but the sovereign predetermined purpose of God guaranteeing his electing activity in your life which secures your future in glory. 
That is a gift. That's a great big why to praise the Lord. So, church, consider the end of all the blessings. Look at verse 6. He chose us, he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise of his glorious grace. I'm willing to bet there are moments in the next year when you're going to wonder, why in the world should I keep going? Why should I keep persevering? Why keep loving God and loving people when there are a thousand things that look easier and feel easier? Okay, if you've ever been there, don't be ashamed. I too have been there. Here's the reason we keep going. Because the glory of God in and through your life is worth it. That's the reason. That's the reason we persevere. Because there is no purpose more satisfying, no cause more eternal, no mission more significant than the magnification and praise of the glory of God. Okay, you couldn't ask for a better reason to go home today and do what God made you to do. God is going to be glorified through your life. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. And it's not because you're going to be so faithful to him, though you better be. It's because God is going to be faithful to you and has resolved that the ultimate end of predestining you and choosing you would be the praise of his glory. Your life matters. You're not here to survive. You're not here to avoid going nuts. Lord, help us not go nuts, but we have a bigger purpose to the praise of his glory. Three times in this long sentence, Paul says, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory, to the, to the praise of your glory. And what's so amazing about all our spiritual blessings is that they at one and the same time serve to the praise of God's glory, to glorify the God who's behind them all, the source and goal of all our blessings, and to achieve our greatest good. Those things go together. That's amazing. Which is why he ends verse 6 with what? God has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ. Christian, God is worthy to be praised. Because he chose you. He predestined you. His grace is the source of all your blessings. His glory is the goal of all your blessings. And if you're wondering this morning, why should I praise God? Hear him say this, because I am the source and goal of all your spiritual blessings. And I've given all of them to you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I ask you now as we sing this song that we began singing this morning, that you would help us to sing it with new faith and new gratitude. That when we say, come praise and glorify our God, we would really mean it. Because we see anew that in Christ, you have, Father, in heavenly realms, your blessing on us poured. We love you. We praise you. And we are grateful, God, for your sovereign grace. 
It humbles us. It gives us hope for holiness. And it comforts us that behind our life is a deeper and bigger purpose than our own resolve. We love you for that. Help us to sing now in Jesus' name. Amen.